0: This is the Education Gadfly Show. So Lincoln Chafee is either A. A small wound socket law firm that handles trusts and estates. B. Mm. A soft rock duo famous for their 1978 hit Kiss on My List.
1: Ooh, that's tempting.
0: Or C. The parent company of Lincoln Logs.
1: What does Gadfly say?
0: Good morning to Mr. and Mrs. America. From border to border, coast to coast, and all the ships at sea. This is your host, Kevin Mankin of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co host, a first time guest of the Gadfly Show. So take it easy on her, Ellen Alpaw, the Lincoln Chafee of education reform. See, I was, I, I intentionally picked. Lincoln Chafee, because I figured there was a possibility that maybe you haven't been keeping up with the news. Maybe you don't know. oh exactly. I know. Well, okay, so He's I'm, no, 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 no. I'm going to, I'm going to put this to the test, okay? I'm going to see. I've given a, I've written up a, a multiple choice question about who Lincoln Chafee might be. Okay, so of these four, Ellen, try, try to see who, who or what Lincoln Chafee is. I'm going to give you a hint. It's concerned with Rhode Island, okay? So Lincoln Chafee is either a, a small wound socket law firm that handles trusts and estates, b Mm. a soft rock duo famous for their 1978 hit "Kiss" on my list.
1: Ooh, that's tempting.
0: Or c the parent company of Lincoln Logs. Which of those three? Is it c? It's no, no, no. It's it's It's, it's,
1: it's none. It's it's there's it's none of the above. D
0: Lincoln Chafe is the former senator, current
1: of Rhode uh, Island, or
0: re- recently former governor of Rhode Island. Yeah. As you may have seen, he was present at the Democratic presidential primary debate. The first one of the season. Mm. Now, we were we were kind of looking at that. What did you what did you think of sort of the, some of the performances? Did you were you like thumbs up, thumbs down on any of the candidates?
1: Yeah, um, I think Hillary did pretty well. And yeah. I don't
0: know. Yeah, she looks like she is probably the front runner. I mean, that's sort of what everyone assumed at the outset. However, after like six months of relentless criticism, maybe people were starting to get doubts. I think she really reasserted herself uh, last night as the candidate to beat. I was not crazy about the performances of everyone else. Mm -hmm. Martin O'Malley looked like he's basically running for vice president, uh, trying to flag uh, the Glass-Steagall issue. Uh, and see if he'll get a, vi- a vice presidential nod. Uh, Bernie Sanders looks like he's running for president of the student government at Sarah Lawrence College. I mean, it's it's just not so. Yeah. It's not like the the you know the lineup of titans you see for the Republican. Yeah. And 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 now actually, our first question has to do with the debate last night. So I'm going to throw it over to Clara to ask our first question.
1: The first Democratic presidential debate was last night. Was the lack of discussion around K-12 education concerning?
0: All right. That's an interesting question. Uh, as you mentioned, there was really very little discussion of education. I mean, none of, of K-12 education, right? Yeah,
1: nothing on K-12, but there was some mention of uh, college.
0: <laughs> yeah, higher ed um, got some discussion. Uh, they sort of all, all the candidates have like pet college affordability plans, how to reduce tuition costs and so forth at state. Universities, but, but but what about do you? Do you I mean, is this basically just a case of it being a pretty non-sexy issue? They're not going to mention it um, and, and no harm, no foul. What do you think?
1: Well, I think it goes beyond it not being a non-sexy issue. I think the candidates are really scared to make a stance on this. It's super divisive. Anything that they're going to make a stance on, whether it be standards or school choice or anything, they're going to lose as many voters as they may gain by doing so. That's my thought. And it also speaks to, I mean, it's also supported by the fact that democratic candidates just recently declined an invitation from Campbell Brown to speak Uh, about this very topic at the education summit later. Yes. It
0: sounds like, yeah, you, uh, you are quoting from our brilliant colleague, Kate Stringer's Mm. piece, castigating the democratic candidates for not going to this 74 candidate forum.
1: That's correct. Kevin,
0: um, and that does strike me as, as sort of a, a case of political cowardice on their part. Now, do you I mean, I mean, my impression, because I also happened to uh, write a little piece about this, uh, although you weren't good enough to bring that up, um, it was that basically these these issues that don't get brought up in political campaigns, that they're uh, issues that don't end up being talked about. Um, they don't end up ever being addressed either when the candidates come into office that is political scientists have sort of looked at this and what they found is that candidates end up making promises and presidents end up keeping promises uh presidents prioritize delivering on things that they have promised to their um to their base even if that's just in the primary you know and then they get through the primary and they're running in the general election and they're going to do fine but they always end up Going back, I mean, President Obama campaigned on healthcare care reform. Uh, he campaigned a little bit on climate change. He's seen action on both of those issues. Now, mm-hmm. something like Guantanamo Bay was like a want to have, but it's not as though he really ran on it in 2008. And so you see a lot less activity on that issue. Um, now, I mean, do you suppose that if we heard anything on K through 12 from these guys, it would be uh, it would be anything groundbreaking or.
1: Um, well, not so much. I think that everyone's track records on the democratic side show that they're pretty much in support of uh most of the reforms, the standards at least, and whatever name they are. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I think I think you're right. like like uh, Hillary last night had to dodge a lot of accusations that maybe she's running for Obama's third term um it, and it, and it's it sounds to me like probably that's that's they're they're gonna end up lining up behind high standards. Probably going to have to kind of square the circle with charter schools, which Democrats have had a hard time with for a long time. So maybe, in fact, it's it's uh, kind of the dog that didn't bark. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I, I hope we'll I hope we'll get more talk from both Democrats and Republicans about this, because it's not as the Republicans have been chatterboxes on education either. Um, Clara, how about number two?
1: Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan's tumultuous education reform policies proved divisive amongst liberals. Did he manipulate the Obama administration's vision for ed reform?
0: Oh, excellent question. Uh, Clara is Clara is getting down uh, to the to, to the bottom of the mystery of just who has been pulling President Obama's puppet strings all these years. It's been me. It's been Ellen Alpa from her from her perch at, uh, in the corner at uh, pu- pushing a mop and, and broom around in the in the office. Of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute has actually uh, been dictating education policy. Now, this is interesting. This, this, this question comes from uh, an article that was written by Jonathan Shade for New York Magazine. I highly recommend it. It's called, Was Arnie Duncan secretly Obama's boss all along? And what he effectively says is that Arnie Duncan resigned a few weeks ago. That's sort of old news. But what you're starting to see now uh, are the retrospectives from different political commentators, liberals. And he's quoting a piece specifically by Charles Pierce of formerly the Boston Phoenix, now of Grantland and an idol of mine, journalistically. But Pierce says that uh, I, I can't quote it exactly, but basically that the, the reformy type policies, things like race to the top, prioritizing high standards, that these were policies that President Obama basically implemented reluctantly. Uh, he uses the word at the behest of Arnie Duncan uh, that he went along, sort of went along to go along. I mean, like Ellen, is that your impression exactly of how white houses work? Is it the secretary of education who, who, who calls the shots?
1: I, I wouldn't say so. No, um,
0: no, <laughs> no I, I, I shouldn't think so. Um,
1: I would hope not. Yeah. it.
0: I mean, I mean, it seems to me that, I mean, your, 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 your work on mostly on the comms side. I mean, what has your impression been of people's, views on arnie duncan like i i i I think he's sort of being made to take the fall here
1: yeah um and it's really easy to beat up on somebody who is the face of education reform for the united states especially when a lot of people don't want anyone in the federal government to be talking about it at all yeah um quite so yeah
0: uh quite so you know duncan um in in a lot of these cases uh the fall guys just as you say it's it's an unelected person It's somebody who was sort of thrust in a role and made the face of a movement or a set of policies. So Ari Duncan is convenient for that. In that way, he sort of reminds me of Eric Holder, uh, former attorney general, who people speculated was like Obama's lightning rod, that these figures were being kept in place because they sort of allowed liberals and conservatives to both beat up on the straw man and Obama would escape unscathed. I have to say that the argument seems to me to be a fallacious one these liberals a lot of them are saying uh you know boy it's too bad Arnie duncan got to got to run education for the last seven years if only the president had 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 known if he'd ever if he'd ever you know looked at what was coming out of uh his department of education which is uh, you know obviously absurd it reminds me of like gulag prisoners in russia in the 1950s uh, saying like if only comrade stalin knew how bad things were here he wouldn't he wouldn't stand for something like this i mean this is the president the president makes the pick he makes the selection for personnel and thereafter i mean his policies are implemented so i i I guess i'd like to see from now on a, a little more accountability if if you have something against the president well then NEA, uh, uh, whoever, whoever the, 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 critic from the left may be, direct it towards the guy who probably is making the call.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks. So. Well said, Kevin. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm going to throw it over now to Clara for number three.
1: Politico recently wrote that Common Core has quietly won mm. the war. Is it true? Is the great battle of education reform over? Mm. Well, I guess we can all go home now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was I was hoping so you know our uh, our our human resources guy will be happy that we don't have to um rent out the office space anymore. Yeah, job this, well
1: done. Job yeah, well done.
0: We can just I can I can go back to hang gliding lessons. This is all right. <laughs> no, I I you know this uh, this is a claim that was made in uh, Politico the other day, it was 2 days ago. Basically speculating that after years now of work setting up the consortia Um, writing the standards uh, getting states to buy in from the National Governors Association that effectively Common Core is now just a fact of life Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
0: it's in place now I believe in 42 states, the District of Columbia also has it, you've had two or three states, South Carolina, Oklahoma who either initially adopted it and then pulled out or who simply never adopted it in the first place it's But for the vast majority, what what was the figure, actually, of of kids who uh, are in classrooms uh, with Common Core?
1: I think it's about 40 million right now. That's four in every five kids. Is it 40?
0: Yeah, 40 million. million. Well, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's it's 80 percent. So, yeah, that would be four out of five. Yeah, 40 million, uh, 80 percent. The the vast majority, therefore, are in states with Common Core. I mean, does this strike you, Alan, as kind of a, a... A a bit of a preemptive uh, declaration of victory. I mean, are we actually? What's what's your assessment? Are we actually there yet?
1: Uh, The battle is only half won, I say. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. Okay, okay,
0: General Eisenhower. (laughs) All right.
1: Yeah. um, Yeah. So Common Core, I think, has pretty successfully been adopted by most states. I think that's hopefully the way it's going to be. But the next challenge is definitely making sure that the tests that are supposed to measure how kids are doing with these standards. Actually, measuring what they say they're supposed to do, they're actually aligned to Common Core, um, and then beyond that, there's communicating those results to parents and students, and finding a way to deal with the fact that a lot of these kids who have previously like been told that they're doing okay are actually really yeah. not. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's that's what they're we've really we've thinking. we've addressed on the on the Fly Paper blog. A lot of the you know it's it's the um, the proficiency illusion. Mm -hmm. The idea that we've been, we've now been telling generations of kids, generations of parents, your kid's doing fine. Don't worry about it. Yes, of course, there's an education crisis in this country, but it has nothing to do with darling little Aiden. Mm -hmm. Uh, I hate that name. Unfortunately, (laughs) uh, unfortunately, now, uh, eventually, there's going to be, there's going to come a time when you set your sights a little higher where, unfortunately, that's not, you're not going to be able to deliver that comforting message anymore. Mm -hmm. Um. I think the, uh, the, other, the other point, the, the, the one last thing that we have to settle here is the political question. I mean, you're, you're very right, Alan, that implementation is important. Uh, and, and that's on the job of ed reformers uh, to hold people's feet to the fire, but pol- politicians have a role here too. Once a policy, uh, especially one that's not produced by federal statute, like a lot of Common Core critics claim that it was, but one that was oh. voluntar- voluntarily adopted um, by the states, once it's put into place that doesn't mean that it's set in stone, right? Uh, the, the President Bush, again, through statute, I mean, these things went through Congress. Notionally, they should have a little more staying power, but President Bush put in place tax cuts in 2001 and 2003. Those tax cuts have changed because government changed. Uh, just off the top of my head, I mean, uh, President Obama uh, made Obamacare a thing. That, the future of Obamacare is not set in stone either. So if we think we have a good thing here, my understanding is we need to make sure we preserve it, um, especially where now in 2016 we've got politicians running for president who are making it basically the point of their campaign, some of them, repeal Common Core. I mean, the, the are, the, it seems to me that there are, who is it, Bobby Jindal, Chris Christie, who's running who's running against this? I mean, there there are figures who actually hate Common Core.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I'd say like most of the Republican cohort, right? Uh
0: most not all. I mean, prominent, prominently, prominently, Jeb Bush. But I mean, if you care to speak about Common Core, it seems as though, uh, and the not and not a few, and to- not a few liberals as well. Uh, if you speak about Common Core, generally speaking, you're bringing it up to condemn it. Mm-hmm. So, I don't think we've turned the page yet, uh, but hopefully, uh, we've reached, if not the beginning of the end, the end of the beginning. I believe now we are going to transition to my main man, David Griffith, for our research minute Uh, after a quick word from our sponsor, Lincoln Chafee, the state trust serving Woonsocket Rhode Island since 1931. (music) And now welcome our guest today, the jim webb of education reform could we call him that you could not i could not call you the jim Webb. how about the jeff merkel the the oregon Mer- senator Merkley. Merkley? Merkley, yeah. oh i'm getting confused with the with the german chancellor i think they i think they share one another's charms it's 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 that it's that native charisma are you going to introduce me yeah. Yeah. David Griffith. Of course, everyone knows who the Jeff Merkel of education reform is. Okay. Glad to be here, Kevin. And he's going to share. Uh, he's going to share his homework, which was a study of the preliminary results of the Tennessee Volunteer Pre-K Effectiveness Study.
2: All right. Thank you, Kevin. Um, that is a study we'll be talking about today. Uh, and it's an important study. Um, what makes it important is its design. Um, so... Yeah, It's based on a randomized control trial, um, which is the w- sort of widely acknowledged gold standard um, for rigorous research um, in education and elsewhere. Um, so this isn't the first time such a design has been used to evaluate a pre-K program, um, but uh, it is the first time this method has been used to evaluate a scaled up state funded pre-K program. And we'll talk about the difference between those. Um, so. Uh, for this study, the researchers are basically, they've been tracking the progress of about 3,000 students um, in Tennessee as they enter elementary school. About two-thirds of these students participated in Tennessee's pre-K program. Um, and then of those 3,000, about 1,000 were evaluated more intensively. Um, so for this group, um, the researchers sort of directly administered a number of skills tests um, that are you know, gauged at the, the pre-K level, obviously. Um, And then also their teachers provided sort of annual ratings of their non-cognitive skills. Um, uh, So what did they find? Well, unfortunately, uh, this is yet another um, disappointing pre-K study. Um, The results are extremely discouraging. Um, Like a lot of other studies, this one um, finds that participating in Tennessee's um, program does give kids a head start, uh, so to speak, as they enter kindergarten um, along a lot of measures. Um, But by the end of kindergarten, um, this advantage had basically disappeared, um, a lot like it did in the famous Head Start Impact study. Um, And worse, by second grade, the kids who participated in the Tennessee pre-K program actually scored lower than the kids in the control group um, on most of the measures. So uh, since the studies come out, lots of um, some, well, some pre-K advocates have sought to downplay it um, and arguing that Tennessee offers lower, you know, has a lower quality pre-K than other states um, it's not clear that there's much evidence that that's actually true, um, and, and moreover, these, these results obviously fit into kind of a pattern that we've seen elsewhere, which is these sort of clear initial benefits um, followed by this really rapid fade-out as the kid, uh, kids enter the K-12 system. Um, so as authors Dale Farron and Mark Lipsy note, there is some as yet poorly understood interaction between the pre-K experience and the experience children have in subsequent grades that fails to carry forward the momentum they gained in pre-K. Uh, so at least for me, all of this is pretty depressing. Um, if you believe as I do that high quality pre-K does have the potential to change the lives of many underprivileged kids um, as it, it seems to have done in a lot of the early studies, like the Perry preschool study and Abby Cedarian, um study. So um, unfortunately we're just, we're operating with fuzzy definitions of pre-K and high quality um, and it's not clear if we can scale that sort of success. All right,
0: all right. Now, now, commentators on this study, it it, it sounds it sounds as though you may share this. There's a, there's a certain amount of fatalism. I mean, you mentioned the Head Start study as well. Uh, are there are there? And I can't blame you for being fatalistic. You're a Trailblazers fan. Are there are there reasons for hope? I mean, on the horizon, is there? Is uh, it, it? It does seem dispiriting. I agree.
2: Yeah. Well, so as Audrey was mentioning before we recorded this, you know. Uh, there's that there are there is this evidence uh you know from these long term studies that actually uh, the benefits of pre k can sort of disappear or or become dormant for a number of years uh, and then sort of reemerge in the data later in life so uh, even though they don't show up in test scores um, uh, in the k twelve years it sometimes it does seem like these uh, like kids do better once they're adults um, the The problem is basically that that there's a thirty year time lag um, you know, between the point at which we offer pre-K and the point at which we know if those results actually occur, right? So it's it's pretty difficult to make policy, I think, based on um, benefits that won't show up for you know until 2030. Um, so I, I I buy those studies, but it, it also it still leaves us in a pretty tough place, I think.
0: Yeah, it certainly does uh, a tough and a lugubrious, sad place. Thank you very much. David Griffith for stopping by to bring down the Education Gadfly Show uh, this morning. Uh, and on that sour note, that's all the time we have for this week's Gadfly Show. Till next week.
1: I'm Ellen Alpaw.
0: And I am Kevin Mank with the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C., For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.